Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with palliative care nurse practitioner Michael Limerick, who's from the District of Kenora Homes for the Aged, and as well, Dr. Amit Arya, who is a palliative care physician, as well as one of the doctors, part of the Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. So let's have a listen. So I just wanted to thank uh, this afternoon, uh, Dr. Arya and uh, Michael Limerick for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles to talk about uh, palliative care and end of life. And we're going to start with the passing of Bill 3, the Compassionate Care Act, which the purpose of this act is to develop a framework to ensure that every Ontarian has access to quality palliative care and how this bill will impact the model in long-term care and should individuals be deemed palliative on admittance with this improved approach to care. Um, Dr. Ari, if you can just go first on this one. Yeah, so absolutely, it's a it's a positive development to see a framework uh, that's been passed, and it was passed with unanimous uh, you know support in the Ontario Legislature. Um, really, I mean, what it means is that the Minister of Health, from my understanding, has to table a report um, on the provincial framework one year after the bill is passed, and then after three years, I mean, they have to prepare and table a report once again. So, I mean, this has to be published on a, on a website. But what I really think is that I mean, this is a great development, and it was. Uh, uh, endorsed by organizations such as the Hospice and Palliative Care Ontario, as well as the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians, where I'm a board member. But what I really think is that there's certain critical things that need to be done now to improve palliative care in, in long-term care. And that requires um, more resources, that requires more education. It means that staff uh, working on the front lines in long-term care have enough time uh, to um, spend time with um, residents, um, uh, do uh, re- uh, symptom assessments using validated tools, making sure that there's proper and frequent communication with uh, family members. And um, if we increase our staffing levels and improve our educational standards, this change can start to happen today. Thank you for that. And Michael, your um, response? So just like Dr. Arya said, you know, the most important thing is access. So the bill is a good start. And I sort of feel, you know, switching from my um, previous experience of working in a tertiary care emergency department for 15 years to coming to work in long-term care for the past four years and thinking about all of the great um, palliative care that I was going to learn and not thinking that I was going to have to be an advocate for and to try to um, be involved in trying to change the system, um, which the bill uh, gives me hope. And it's something that I think is sort of ridiculous to talk about why in this aspect of healthcare that we are trying to fix right now and we've been dying since the beginning of time. Um, but access, right, like Dr. Arias said, we don't have the human resources and long-term care to accomplish this. So the bill, again, is a great start. How do we fix the problem now? How do we change from the model of how uh, long-term care is funded right now with one to 30 ratio of staff to a hospital ratio is difficult to pull off um, quality palliative care um, with the amount of people that are in long-term care to provide that. So that's the the biggest thing I think this bill hopefully will try to address as well, or also show those shortcomings, which again, this pandemic has already done so. 
Thank you so much. And the second part of that question, Lara, is should individuals be deemed palliative on admittance? And would this, you know, allow for the improvement to the approach of care? Uh, Dr. Arya? Yeah, so of course, I mean, we shouldn't be deeming any individual as palliative. I mean, we shouldn't be using the word palliative as an adjective to describe human beings or a prognosis or, or diagnosis, in fact. Uh, palliative care is an approach to care which can be provided at any point during someone's uh, you know, disease trajectory. Uh, it can be provided for people with curable or incurable illnesses. And it's not time dependent, it's not prognosis dependent, but it's needs dependent. So yes, I mean, I do think with the vast majority of residents, who live in long-term care facilities. When we know in Ontario, even before the pandemic, the median prognosis or the median life expectancy was 18 months, um, uh, definitely would benefit from a palliative care approach uh, to be initiated uh, upon admission to long-term care. And in fact, even before uh, admission to long-term care as well. I mean, this what this really means is it means timely intervention when it comes to management of symptoms and suffering, regular and frequent conversations with substitute decision makers who are often family members, and also uh, um, psychosocial, emotional, and spiritual support for residents and their loved ones, along with advanced care planning and goals of care. And it's, of course, very clear that the pandemic, uh, where we've had um, over 3,500 people, uh, now close to 4,000 who have died in Ontario's long-term care facilities from COVID-19, um, has revealed not just a crisis of death, but a rather a crisis of suffering a crisis where people did not get uh, appropriate end-of-life care or symptom management, uh, a crisis where there were human rights violations because family members could not be involved in decision-making and didn't know the options in front of them. There were many circumstances where the communication was so poor where family members didn't even know their loved one had COVID-19. So that is absolutely appalling and it reveals to us a big gap and definitely as we're talking about overhauling the system, palliative care has to be a part of that. Thank you so much for that. And Michael, your thoughts? You know, the, the, I see it, you know, when I look at that second part of the question, you know, Dean Palliative, would that help, would that help things? You know, so much of this um, end of life care and what we do in long-term care is psychology and so much support that need, is needed to be provided to the, um, to the family in terms of um, how we're preparing for the future and what that looks like. And the fact that people are admitted in long-term care um, with end stage, whether that be um, kidney failure, heart failure, cancer, et cetera, and have never had those conversations before, whether that was from the last six months that they were waiting in hospital to come to long-term care or um, in the community. So um, in theory, um, the amount of care that people need with acute and chronic care, right? Like Dr. Arias said, when your lifespan is approximately 18 months in long-term care, um, the amount of skilled support and uh, human resources that it requires um, and what that takes to pull off when people are um, having more and more needs as they're approaching a bend of life um, is something that, again, we have to change our whole thinking of how we support people in long-term care. Um, and again, sometimes I think this is a little too late, but again, a great start that this bill has come to fruition and that we are moving forward with these things. Thank you. And my next question is, how would you facilitate in terms of having more than one family member during the end of life process in long-term care and how the pandemic has revealed that this was not thought of and what that should be moving forward. I'll, I'll start with you, Michael, first on this one. 
Right. So this has been tricky. Um, I guess right again at the beginning of the pandemic, long term care, especially in my region, we shut down. You family was not allowed in unless it was at end of life. And at that time, uh, which was months ago, you had one family member that was allowed in. And since that has evolved and we have changed our approach. So the tricky part is, you know, at that time too, as we're approaching uh, approaching end of life, to allow family in, and what we do in Kenora is allow four family members in. We waive swabs, we ask families to wear full PPE and we bring them in, not including a clergy if that's required. Um, but doing that at end of life, so in the beginning, you know, when family members or when residents or patients were unconscious, um, and then we we're let family in, that's a little too late. So as people are starting to uh, change or as their PPS score is uh, falling or as their frailty scale is increasing, and at that point where we are very close to um, end of life, we start allowing those extra families to come in uh, earlier to be with and support with their, their family members, which I think definitely makes a bigger difference as they can be with someone and support them perhaps when they're still vocal, when they're still conscious, as things are changing, um, when they're left out of the loop, um, or um, I should say that better, when they're brought in when residents are really at end of life, um, it's so difficult, they struggle with, you know, did we do the right thing? Should they have gone to hospital? Would something have changed if we added more medications? Why weren't they weren't aware of things? But it's an encompassing process of having family um, supported at the same time as someone is changing at the end of life and bringing them in earlier is better. Thank you. And Dr. Aria, your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I absolutely agree with what Michael is saying um, as someone who's working on the front lines uh, in long-term care facilities. Um, it's been my experience ever since I started working in long-term care. And in fact, all areas of the healthcare system, whether it's home care or the hospital sector, that family members um, are essential partners in care. And there's not just visitors. Um, any policy, whether it's hospital or long-term care that shuts out family members doesn't result in people losing visitors, but it results in people losing care. I mean, day in and day out, I see see uh, these unpaid uh, family caregivers, often women who are sort of, uh, you know, helping people to take their medications, uh, advocating for their loved ones, um, you know, uh, medical options and sort of advocating for better care to be provided, assisting with translation, being part of goals of care discussions, um, helping with bathing and feeding. I mean, the list just goes on. And, and really, this has been harmful policy for many people who are seniors, people who suffer from language barriers, hearing and vi or, or vision impairments. Uh, or, uh, you know, other disabilities through our healthcare system, including in long-term care. Um, I absolutely, um, you know, agree also with what Michael is saying, that the policies which only allow people in at end of life are flawed, are, are definitely flawed. Uh, firstly, uh, as he's outlined, because, you know, at end of life, people are often unconscious and cannot communicate. So it's hard to say your goodbyes, but also because end of life is unpredictable. People can die suddenly, and that definitely happens. I mean, monitoring to see how quickly someone is declining requires enough trained staff to be present on site. And in many long-term care homes, there's a staffing crisis where that just can't happen. And especially when we're talking about a disease like COVID-19, uh, I have worked on the front lines of long-term care homes with large-scale COVID-19 outbreaks, and people can die actually in hours. 
So this is really a flawed strategy from the start, and we need to make sure that we have enough staff to safely allow family caregivers in, um, not just at end of life, to make sure that they can provide proper care. We need to listen to them and make sure their voice is included um, in leadership and government tables. And also, I mean, right now, I mean, I think we need to make sure that we have legislation to make sure that long-term care home operators cannot just at the drop of a hat, just exclude them from coming in. Thank you. And further to that part in terms of the legislation, do you feel as if long-term care facilities should be legislated to provide formalized palliative care and hospice care programs and to train all healthcare workers to address the needs of the residents and the caregivers? Dr. Aria? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree that should be legislated and enforced. Um, it's very important that the palliative care approach is considered early on for um, a resident uh, living in long-term care. And um, it's very clear that we have a big gap in how that care is delivered across our long-term care homes. There's some long-term care homes which are doing it very well. And there's many homes where the nurses and the physicians, nurse practitioners like Michael, um, PSWs are all on the same team and are very well trained in the palliative care approach but really what we're looking at here is that your care and how you suffer or don't suffer and how communication with families happens can't depend on that chance encounter with that physician or nurse practitioner or nurse or other health professional who knows what they're doing. This really has to be part of the standard of care. And one thing I always ask myself is that, well, we wouldn't really allow it in any other area of the healthcare system. Whether, you know, for example, we wouldn't allow someone who couldn't deliver babies to work on labor and delivery. Um, and that's just sort of an expectation. And even some of the nurses who work there are just so phenomenal and can deliver babies on their own. But for some reason in long-term care that's not something that is um, enforced currently and also I wanted to add that the ratios of staff as Michael mentioned are not appropriate to providing the skilled care and the time that is needed to look after residents in long-term care. As he was mentioning, you may have a nurse looking after 30 residents in the day. In my experience, that can drop down to one nurse looking after 60 at night. And why is it that in the local hospice, it's one to five? Why is it that in the hospital, for example, I work on the palliative care unit in my local hospital and it's one nurse uh, who's looking after six or seven residents at most. So that definitely shows that we have a staffing crisis. We need to hire more staff and we need to enforce uh, these educational standards to make sure everyone has the specialized training. And Michael, what would you have to say in regards to that? Well, so before I knew Dr. Arya was a part of this uh, conversation, I was quoting Dr. Arya in my answer for this uh, question, uh, which is including that long-term care requires skilled medical and social care across many professional disciplines. And yes, absolutely, just everything um, that he just mentioned is um, so important and it's so profound. Um, and just one more thing about Dr. Arya, we are so lucky that we have such a um, compassionate, articulate, smart um, um, physician that is advocating um, when we really don't need or think that we would have to have someone in this position right now advocating for um, residents in long-term care at end of life and with this pandemic, but it's so important. We so need it. So thank you for that. On Every time you're on um, um, CBC or whatever it is or how we get a, in a hold of you, what you say resonates. And I can't believe we haven't, haven't made changes already because of the discussions that we've had with you. So thank you for that. 
My biggest role in long-term care when I came in here and I talked to other palliative care nurse practitioners working in long-term care said, you know what, just look at the palliative care piece. Just look at that first and, and change that. And I was floored. I, was, I didn't understand what that meant and why we, I would have to um, look at the palliative care uh, model and how we were approaching that to long-term care. But when I started here, um, every single person had a different comment or a different answer on what end of life meant, what palliative care meant, what symptom management went, meant when we started palliative care, when we talked to the family. Um, and every single physician I worked with had a different strategy for end of life management. So the education piece, the, the fact that it could be legislated and formalized in everything that we do in all aspects of um, all of us that work in this um, environment only provides better care for people and that's so important. So I feel lucky and fortunate that we've been able to standardize things, improve care, start protocols, um, and develop that skill set within long-term care, but this should already be done. Yes, I would agree. And the other question that I have is in terms of the government's commitment right now to build new facilities for more long-term care beds and monitor, monitor, monitorizing uh, these uh, long-term cares, do you think that it should be mandated to have in built-in elements of the snoozeland therapy elements for each room? Michael? Well, you know, there's so many things that we could do to improve quality of life and long-term care, non-pharmacological um, ways of improving care. And a lot of things or a lot of ways people are managed in long-term care, and I hate to say that word, but when we're providing institutionalized care and we do, when we do not have enough skilled workers to work in this environment, a lot of people are managed with more medication. Um, so whether that's snoozeland, whether that's butterfly, whether that's um, um, daycare in long-term care, pet therapy, whatever it is that um, can improve someone's situation and help them, especially with end-stage uh, dementia and reducing agitation and aggression and anxiety um, and helping them with the day-to-day -day with the limited life that they have, I think it's paramount. So I'm a big fan of snoozeland, but I'm a big fan of, of being creative in terms of any non-pharmacological approach uh, that'll work in long-term care. Thank you. And Dr. Aria, your thoughts? Yeah, so I absolutely agree with Michael. And really, um, the, you know, the perspective here, here should be, if we call these facilities long-term care homes, how can they be more like homes and less like institutions? I mean, how can they look, feel, smell, and really incorporate that home-like feeling um, rather than sort of being described as a warehouse where we just have separated seniors off from society. Really, that shows us that we need to not just look at staffing, which is, of course, critical and should be part of any type of long-term care overhaul, but we need to actually look at how our long-term care facilities are designed. And right now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we have uh, you know, a situation where, I mean, in private for-profit long-term care homes, those homes are disproportionately affected uh, by COVID-19 because they're actually designed in the wrong way. And they have actually designed standards from the 1970s that have not been updated, where there are three or four people living together in one room and sharing one bathroom. 
So that absolutely cannot be allowed to continue. And it means that we need to make sure that, you know, these, you know, seniors autonomy and privacy is absolutely protected. Care shouldn't be regimented and rationed, but rather based on uh, relationships and individualized. But also when we're looking at how we uh, build our long-term care homes of the future, then once again, they need to be more like homes. And definitely there's a lot of people who are talking about um, sort of different ways to do that. And one sort of aspect of this is to rather think Think about uh, small household models. So small home-like situations where um, you have um, sort of maybe 10 or 15 people living together in, in under one roof with a dedicated team of staff who are looking after them. This is often called the household model. I mean, of course, it's very clear this would be much better for infection control, but for what is so important to care, which is based on human connection, uh, knowing someone's values and beliefs and wishes. I mean, all of that would be much better, uh, I feel, under the, you know, the household model. And I really think that we should move away from having people in, you know, sort of big institutions. And, you know, the other point I can add to that is that we have a big gap in terms of how we deliver culturally specific and language specific care in our long-term care homes. The wait lists for those long-term care homes are much higher than the rest of the long-term care system. So I really hope that um, incorporating the household model, these small home designs uh, to provide long-term care um, would be very helpful uh, in that aspect. Thank you for that. And just lastly, on the fact that, you know, there is many discussions about long-term care, how things should change for the future, and especially when it comes to palliative care and end of life and what we've seen during this uh, COVID-19, what this pandemic has revealed to us, do you have any lastly thoughts as to what needs to be tackled uh, firstly to in order to make some of these commitments become, become a reality, Dr. Arya? Well, I think uh, overall, I mean, I think the crisis that's happened uh, in long-term care facilities has been a crisis, not just of COVID-19 and of deaths, but of suffering, um, you know, that was not managed or treated well, suffering uh, due to abandonment and neglect. And it's really exposed um, a big failure in our healthcare system and our society at large, where we often focus on cure, we focus on treatments which will save lives, but we don't really acknowledge how um, people who are in their last months or years of life still have the full right to care and they still deserve the best care of their lives uh, at that point. And really our long-term care system, I feel, is reflective of that where we wouldn't think of, you know, sort of having one nurse for 30 people in any other area of, the, of, the, of our healthcare system, but yet it's been allowed to fly in long-term care for decades. And it's something where it's really taken a pandemic to shine a light on these pre-existing uh, inequities. So now is the chance that we have to move forward and you know change how we deliver long-term care. We also need to make sure that we incorporate home care as part of that reform, because um, you know although um, healthcare it's 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 not a competition, but it is a continuum. So I mean we have to give equal attention to other areas such as home care, and we have to really realize that of course these are phases of life that one day. We will all go through. The people that died in long-term care homes were not just numbers, but they were actually real human beings um, who were people's parents and grandparents. And this, this, I mean, the only way out of this tragedy is to make sure we overhaul the entire system to make sure we're actually giving people the life they, they deserve. Thank you so much for that. And Michael, your thoughts, please. 
Well said. How am I supposed to follow up on that? But um, so th this is the most interesting part of, of what I've learned is, you know, we we don't think we're going to die. I don't understand when I'm in front of politicians, when I'm in front of directors, when I'm in front of anyone that I can possibly uh, try to, again, advocate for what is happening in this current state. You know, it's I, I almost say it's almost like shaming. You know, we need to change this for ourselves. Never mind the people that are going through it right now, which we are, which we are not doing well. But we're all going to go through the system. Um, we need to change it now. It's so important. I don't know why we've or how we've devalued uh, people that are going through these changes and are approaching end of life, and that is a system that we have to fundraise for, and that we have to find volunteers for, and that we have to. Um, uh, struggle to provide this care. Um, it's just, um, it's, it's disappointing. It's a mystery to me. And it's something that, again, um, if, if I can look at anything of glass half full that this pandemic has done, it's hopefully we can improve these situations and it's brought all of this to light. So I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for this change. and I'm excited to be a part of it. Thank you so much. And I do want to thank you both for coming on today to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And I do really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.